All right, so. So maybe y'all can come. So up. if Ada and Claire and your families want to come stand up here, and we can stay here and watch. And I went in alphabetical order, so Ada, you will be first. And you know that her verse is the one in the parentheses there. The woman and the man heard the sound of the sovereign God walking about the garden in the breezy part of the day. And the woman and her man hid themselves from the presence of the sovereign God among the trees and the garden. Um, the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The sovereign God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all herd animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days in your life I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. To her offspring will strike your head, and you will strike the heel of her offspring. To the woman God said, I will greatly increase your painful toil and your pregnancies. In pain you shall birth children and your desire shall be for your man yet he shall rule with you and to the man god said because you have listened to the voice of your woman and have eaten of the tree which i commanded you you shall not eat from it cursed is the ground because of you in the painful toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorn and thistle it shall grow for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow shall you eat bread until you return to the ground for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the sovereign God made garments of skins for the woman and her man, and clothed them. Thank you. While everyone returns to their seats, I will continue our reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 14 through 22. Now when you all see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The woman or man on the housetop should not go down or enter the house to take anything out, and the one in the field should not turn back to grab a garment. Woe to those who have a child in womb and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it be not winter, for in those days there will be affliction of such a kind as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now. No, and never will be. And if the living one had not cut short those days, no flesh would be saved. Rather, for the sake of the elect whom God chose, God has cut short those days. 
If anyone says to you all at that time, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there is the Christ, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, the elect. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. I invite you now to sing our hymn, number 162, The Love of God. Verse that have been changed. Updated.
I already knew that I can often be a broken record, but I have learned that deeply this morning. Um, uh, so here's another broken record Megan thing. So some of you have been around for a while, have surely heard me say this a number of times. One of the things I love about that hymn, that beloved last verse with its amazing poetry and imagery is that it comes from the Quran. It was adapted by a Jewish rabbi. And then I'm pretty sure that, so I, I don't know 100%, but the music was written by a layman in the US. I think it was a Mennonite who set it to music, which is why part of why it's been such a beloved hymn in Mennonite circles for so long. From the Quran, adapted by a Jewish rabbi, set to music by a Mennonite. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Ooh. And you thought it couldn't be more beautiful than it already was. And there's my broken record uh, description of why I think it's even more beautiful than when we just sing it. Oh, that's so gorgeous. Well, friends, I promised you part two of a sermon about Eve this week. So even if you weren't here for part one, I think you'll still be able to follow, but we are picking up where we left off in Genesis 3 last week. And I want to start by telling you that there was a, um, there was a time in my Chicago uh, congregation. So I was a pastor in Chicago for 10 years before coming to Seattle Mennonite in 2015. And I don't think we've done it here. It's possible we did it once, but we did a difficult scriptures series where I had people submit. Did we do that here maybe once? I think we'd, okay, I'm looking at Beth and Ken, they're nodding. Yeah, I think maybe we did do it once. It's maybe time though to do it again since I couldn't remember if we had done it. I know that in Chicago, someone submitted this and was like, what is up with this? And the way this has been used against women and women being blamed for the fall, the fall of all humanity. And so um, anyway, I remember during that time, um, that one of the things that struck me is that the person who submitted it had such concern for the role of the woman and women in this tale, the implications for all women for all time, which we know. But in many ways, I found as I was working with it and living with the text, I was pretty actually more troubled <laughs> by the role and the character of the man in the story. He doesn't get quite the same bad rap over history, but he's uh, really passive in this text, even comical at points, just a, kind of a bumbling, comical, bleh. he's got a lack of agency, a lack of curiosity. He even blames God for the whole incident, like when God comes and sort of confronts him and has come, Adam is blaming God. And so Adam, you know, he's a secondary character in this story for sure. But I do think that there's perhaps maybe even some more work that needs to be done in redeeming Adam in this story. We have done a lot of work in redeeming Eve, but you know, Adam too perhaps needs a, a bit of redemption in this story. Well, here we go. What we've got is Eve as the primary character in this story and she eats. In eating, 
she initiates the coming of a new world. We began to sort of explore this at the end of the sermon last week. So that's where we're picking up. She initiates the coming of a new world and that action, that action of curiosity, of reaching, of taking, of eating, all of that essentially gives birth to culture. It gives birth to the marks of a social life in the world. The knowledge of good versus evil is the way it's described. It gives birth to clothing, clothing that defines us still to this day, clothing that conceals things, and it gives birth to the mess that is gender roles. Holy cow. The woman is to be the bearer of children, the mother of all life, and the man is to work the ground, which will only grudgingly yield its fruits. And this, unfortunately, is also part of the new world order that is born from this story. There is hierarchy. That is quite clear in this story. In fact, it's explicit. It's explicit in what we heard this morning, that the snake is named as subservient to woman, who is named as, Will Gaffney kind of uh, softens it in her translation, um, but woman then is subservient to man. Man is subservient to God. And there is no way around just confronting this order and this hierarchy in this story. It is very clear, it's very explicit. And it reflects the author's, frankly, male-oriented, patriarchal worldview. Just is. And as Christians, Jesus, of course, is always our final word. I took part in a webinar this week um, about an Anabaptism at 500 project that you'll hear a little bit more about in announcements and you'll hear much more about in the coming weeks. And John D. Roth was leading that session. He's a longtime history professor at Goshen College, author of books. He's one of the holders of sort of Anabaptist and Mennonite history in our community. And he talks about this, that Jesus is the lens through which Anabaptists have read all of scriptures. And different Christian groups have different sort of hermeneutical approaches. So Lutherans love Paul, for example. It doesn't mean that, I mean, they're Christians, they love Jesus too, but, but the Pauline epistles have a more central place in their understanding of Lutheran theology. So, you know, each Christian group has its own thing. Mennonites have always gone straight to Jesus, straight to the Gospels. It's part of why you heard me say, a good place to start reading in that library that you're holding, broken record. That library that you're holding in the sacred texts of the Bible is Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, because that's just, that's kind of where we go. That's where we start. So when we look at this story in Genesis through the lens of Jesus, the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that complexifies things, right? We see that the hierarchy is not necessarily a prescribed thing that God is saying must be forever and ever, amen, because we see a different thing witnessed through the life and teachings and witness and ministry of Jesus. One of the specific curses comes across as a curse in the story is the pain of childbirth 
And uh, one of the things that occurs to me as I look at this story in Genesis is that there was no childbirth in Eden. It is not as though childbirth at one time was painless and then becomes painful. There were no children born in the Garden of Eden, right? It's not as though birth was at one point no big deal and then they come banished from the garden and it's painful. Suddenly there's pain. It's rather once there was no birth and now there is birth. Oh, and by the way, it's going to be painful. (laughs) So this is where it's really important. Uh, It's important for me to get the book that I left on the chair right there that I want to read from. Oh, look, Dustin's going to get it for me. Yeah. Thank you. It's important for us to remember that in the library of the Bible, where there are different genres, Genesis is a specific genre. So we're going to get to that. This story, the story in Genesis, it reads like a tale of maturation, of maturing. From the childlike innocence, shamelessness, ease, and infantile nakedness of Eden, to the much more complex and developed and even sexualized post-Eden world. So in many ways, this story in Genesis 3 is like humanity's Bildungsroman, for those of you who took a literature class in, in university. This is humanity's growing up tale a tale of a coming of age. So through Genesis 3, you can see that humanity is getting so big. Oh, they're growing up so nicely, (laughs) inhabiting the complex world that they do. Now it is clear that while woman is the primary actor in this story, that, that man eats too. So man and woman do share responsibility for the altered state, the post-Eden world. Woman is on her way to earning the name Eve or life bearer. She has given that name at the very end of our story today. She activates the plot's development. She's the first to dare to eat from God's tree, thereby becoming, as the rabbis say of human beings, like the angels and having the ability to discriminate. And like the animals who eat, fornicate, defecate, and die. Thanks to the rabbis for their uh, (laughs) clarity of speech there. This is a story of maturation, of humanity becoming like the angels and the animals all at once. And maturation is a mixed bag, as we all know. The whole rights and responsibilities thing. Hashtag adulting. Meh. This is something that the ancient Hebrews like us knew experientially. They knew the reality of what it is to be a human, to have all the rights granted to us, to be creatures in the world, and having the responsibility of being creatures in the world. So this tale helped to explain a world that was so beautiful and so terrible all at the same time. A humanity that was so beautiful (laughs) and so terrible all at the same time. 
Genesis in the genre of the library of the Bible is not a historical text. It's not history. Genesis is not a prophetic text. It is not telling us about the world that should be, could be, will be. Genesis is etiology. Anybody know what that is? The way things began. It is origin story. That is what Genesis is. It's an origin story to explain why the essentials of human survival, like reproduction and food production, are so hard. Right? This is humans experiencing the challenges of living in a beautiful and terrible world and why the essentials for survival are so laborious. And so they told a story to make sense and meaning of all of that, to center themselves in God's story. Now, Genesis, etiology, origin story is not the only genre in our library. There are many other genres, including, for example, the Psalms, the genre of poetry, song, prayer. And in Psalm 96, we hear humanity also grappling with this beautiful yet terrible world, beautiful yet terrible humanity. And in the Psalms, the way that they do that is by sharing a prayer and a praise about flourishing in the hostile world that gave rise to the stories of Genesis. The world, though difficult, is not actively hostile, and in the Psalms, actively joins humanity in praise. And so Psalm 96, again, just like with Genesis, looking at the beautiful and terrible world, beautiful and terrible humanity says this, sing to the exalted a new song. Sing to the creator, all the earth, sing to the most high, bless her name. Proclaim from day to day her salvation. Declare among the nations her glory, among all the peoples her marvelous works. For great is the ageless God and greatly to be praised. Revered is she above all gods. Looking at the same beautiful, terrible world and humanity. Through prayer and praise, the people sing of their ability to flourish in a creation that is both terrible and beautiful. And then further down in the psalm, say among the nations, the ever-living God reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It shall never be moved. God will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar along with what fills it. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest shall sing for joy. So here we have a totally different way of just being in all of creation so beautiful and so terrible. So there is not... There is real danger, though, and that's where our gospel for today comes in. The real danger is not the reaching for the fruit. The real danger is not the curiosity. The real danger is not the pain of childbirth or the labor of the earth. The real danger 
we hear Jesus instructing his disciples is danger in refusing to bow to the empire and to its idols. So Jesus warns his disciples, that's, that's where the real curse actually is. So if we're going to read through the lens of Jesus, the real curse to humanity is when we bow to the empire and to its idols. If we're to follow Jesus and to refuse to do that bowing, we might suffer some consequences. Okay, I am going to move us toward closure now, but I'm going to do so with the help of some more rabbis. I am going to close with a Jewish midrash. Midrash is a whole genre, a whole other genre that we have. Wonderful. Okay, Dustin loves midrash. Um, how can we not? It's a whole other genre of people of faith after the canonization of the Bible, creating stories to fill in the gaps, to wonder about the spaces between the stories. Uh, so it's a sacred tradition of deep engagement with the text and with understanding of God. This is a Jewish midrash that gorgeously tells of that mixed bag of maturation that we have here in Genesis 3, capturing the complexity of our beautiful and terrible world of birth and pain and struggle and discernment and hard work and ultimately death. Yes, death. This midrash is known as the first tear. After Adam and Eve had been banished from the Garden of Eden, God saw that they were penitent and took their sorrow very much to heart. And God, as God is a compassionate parent and creator, God said to them gently, unfortunate children, I have driven you out of the Garden of Eden where you were living with, without care and with great well-being. Now you are about to enter into a world of sorrow and trouble, the likes of which staggers the imagination. Don't we know that? However, I want you to know that my benevolence and my love for you will never end. I know that you will meet with much tribulation in the world and that it will embitter your lives. For this reason, I give you out of my heavenly treasure this priceless pearl. Look. It is a tear. And when grief overtakes you and your heart aches so that you are not able to endure it and great anguish grips your soul, then there will fall from your eyes this tiny tear. Your burden will grow lighter then. When Adam and Eve heard these words, sorrow overcame them. Tears welled up in their eyes, rolled down their cheeks, and fell to earth. And it was these tears of anguish that first moistened the earth. 
Adam and Eve left them as a precious inheritance to their children and their children's children and their children's children's children. And since then, whenever a human being is in great trouble and their heart aches and their spirit is oppressed, the tears begin to flow from their eyes and lo, the burden is made just a bit lighter. Amen. Thanks be to God, and may it be so.